Well, welcome to IBCA once again. We are blessed to have you all here with us. Uh, let me pray for us before we get ready to get into the Word. Let's go to the Lord together. Father, we recognize that our need for you, our dependency on you, is, is even here now in this moment, Father, as we get ready to hear your Word without your Spirit to speak to our lives, without humility in our hearts, Lord, we will not be able to receive your truth. Lord, we invite you to come and illuminate the text for us. Lord, the word this morning will come through an earthen and weak vessel, but Lord, I pray that you would magnify yourself, that you would meet with us, that you would teach us and instruct us in your way so that we would leave from this place with a greater love for you and a greater devotion to you. And so, Father, we ask that your spirit would come and empower every part of the hearing of your word and the, speaking, the preaching of your word, as well as the reception and the practicing of your word. Let us be doers and not merely hearers today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, once again, welcome. Uh, we are excited to have quite a few of you visitors here today. We are having a special observation of a coffee ceremony from Africa today. And we invite you all to stay around for that at two o'clock. We'll get to see uh, what that looks like and how that can be used as an outreach tool over in Africa. Well, uh, recently we've had some heavy winds in Arlington. Uh, this last Thursday, our community group was cowering in the back of the baptistry here, making sure that if the uh, tornadoes decided to set, set itself down on our building, that we would still somehow be safe. And I remember when I walked outside, I watched these leaves getting blown by this, blown is not even the right word, it was getting blasted by this torrent of wind, and these leaves are just in this spiral, just, just, just flying chaotically. It reminded me of what sometimes my life feels like since having our second child. It seems like there are times where my life is, such a, is, is, is in such chaos and disorder. And there are times where you might feel like your lives are being blown about, carried away by the chaotic winds of life. This happens to all of us. Missionaries, regular people working a job here, you name it. In 1865, the China Inland Missions was established, and Hudson Taylor was returning to China after having gone back to England to share what God was doing out there. And he had a wonderful furlough. He came back to China with his four children, his wife, and 15 new missionaries, all zealous, all ready to go. He had stirred up much of England, so much to the point that even the great Charles Spurgeon said, China, China, China is now ringing in our ears in that special, peculiar, musical, forcible, unique way in which Mr. Taylor utters it. By all, by all accounts, Hudson Taylor was on top of the world when he came back. God was opening doors. There was support coming in. There were people that were getting called to the mission. But just two years later, his daughter Gracie would succumb to illness. A year after that, his missionary home was attacked. They, were, they had their home burned down by hostile Chinese locals. The English press pinned the unrest onto the Chinese inland missionaries. This is your fault. You all are going there trying to preach this religion, 
and you're causing there to now be this tension between England and the Chinese. When Hudson Taylor read the negative press about his ministry, it crushed him. He grew deeply depressed and entered a season of struggling. He says, I quote, I hated myself. I hated my sin, and yet I gained no strength against it. Every day, almost every hour, the consciousness of failure and sin oppressed me. This is the great Hudson Taylor, founder of the China, China Inland Missions. And he's sharing here in this moment that, that his life is he's caught in this cycle of sin and failure and depressive thought, and he feels helpless, like a leaf being blown about in the wind. Brothers, sisters, our spiritual lives are not just linear progression like we often think about. It's filled with the ups and downs. It's filled with turbulence and trials and troubles. And often God uses these storms to blast away our sense of security and self-dependency. He uses it to crush our pride in order that he would put us in a place where we can grow and learn to trust him and to depend on him. After all, our capacity to grow in our faith is largely inversely proportional to our hardship and circumstances in life. The harder life gets, oftentimes the more open we are to how God wants to work and transform us. Sometimes we come face to face with our sins and our struggles and our sorrows of the past. If I had a name for this sermon, I'd call it when sins, sorrows, and struggles resurface. But when we come face to face with it, it can be excruciatingly painful to deal with. Yet, with the right heart of worship and submission to God, it can also become the greatest catalyst for growth and maturation in the faith. And we're going to see that in the life of Joseph in chapter 42 today. I invite you to turn there. If you have your Bibles, please open up to Genesis 42. Thomas brought us last week through uh, the tumultuous story of Joseph. And he uh, finished off the sad portion, uh, the, the, the depressing portion, uh, so it would seem, of Joseph's life. And where he, when he left us off, we see that Joseph has gone from rags to riches. He's gone from being a forgotten slave in an Egyptian prison. He's gone from being a man that was totally unknown to now a man recognized in all of Egypt for his discernment. He is elevated to the second highest position in all the country. And he has come such a long, long way since losing that ornate robe. Now he is decked out and dripping with swag. He's got all the Egyptians' best clothing and jewelry. So lofty is his status that when he goes out, chariots ride out before him to proclaim his arrival. So honored is his authority in all the land that Pharaoh says, without your word, no one is able to lift a foot or a hand in all of Egypt. That's some pretty impressive power. With this new authority, Joseph flourishes in his new position. He is bringing in the harvest year after year, uh, unprecedented amount of harvest. Obviously, he attributed that to God already, but the, all the people know is that since this Joseph guy got into office, we have been head over, the, 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 just overflowing with, with this grain and with blessing. In fact, they stopped counting and measuring how much grain is being brought in because 
It says that the amount of grain coming into the cities was like the, 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 the sand on the sea, right? Who can count how many specks of sand are on a seashore? And so his, his, his life is blessed, his work is blessed, and not only that, his family is blessed. He's married into a prestigious family with a wife who goes on to bear to him two sons. And my goodness, what else could you want from life? He's got the status. He's got the great job. He's got the recognition. He's got the family. And by the way, this new family is a comfort to him in spite of all his suffering that he's gone through. He names his first son Manasseh, meaning God has made me forget all my trouble. And get this, this is important for today's sermon. And all my father's household. Not only has he forgot his troubles, according to the naming of Manasseh, but he's forgotten the whole family household of before. That, that the naming of his son is literally a, a statement of disownment. That I am done with the past. And I'm done with my old family and all the bitterness that came through it. I've forgotten them. Second, he names as the second son Ephraim or Ephraim. He says, God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. It's important too, not just fruitful in the land, it is the land of his suffering. You'll notice that the scars are not healed despite the naming of his sons. Perhaps in some way, Joseph hoped if I would name my sons these things, it will ease the pain and, and truly come to fruition, that I would forget about my old troubles and, and really just be blessed in this suffering land. Both were reminders of suffering and sorrow in the past. And if the story were to end here, you might say, well, great, a picture-perfect ending. He all ends well. He's happy. He's, he's moved on from the burdens of his past, and now he can thrive in this new life that God has given to him. But here at chapter 42, there's about to be a huge downward turn. If chapters 40 and 41 were building up, right, and it's just Joseph ascending, suddenly his life is about to come and, 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 and hit turbulence and get thrown about. God was about to send something into Joseph's life that was probably his biggest trial up to date at this time, something that would shake him to his core. Let's read about it in Genesis 42. I'm going to recap up to verse 6 to save us time as we're going through the whole chapter today. So in the 42nd chapter of Genesis, we return to the scene of Joseph's old family. And Jacob is looking at his sons, these worthless sons in this case, who are just sitting around staring at each other as famine has set into the land. Joseph prophesied that this would happen. Seven years of plenty in Egypt, seven years of famine worldwide. And so in the land of Canaan, Joseph's old family is starting to feel the crunch, much like many of you are feeling the crunch of inflation these days. They started to feel it, right? Instead of $6 for a carton of eggs for them, it was, I don't know what kind of inflation they had, but they said, can you believe that's what we pay for a little bit of grain? Well, they're starting to run out, and Jacob says to his sons, why are you all staring at each other? You know, you've heard that there is food available in Egypt. Why don't you all get up and go out there and go bring back the food, right? Go bring back the grain. And so he sends off his 10 sons on a supply run. Soon he will find that this is actually a sanctification run. It's not so much the food that they need, but God had something far more important waiting for them in Egypt. And friends, 
When you're starting to go through these difficult circumstances in life, don't mistake the exterior just to be something trivial, just something that you have to go through. God has his purpose for his people. If we pay attention, we'll see it. And so let's start reading in verse 6. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. Uh, from the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, Your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man who lived in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Joseph said to them, it is just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother, and the rest of you will be kept in prison, so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are, you are spies. And he put them in custody for three days. Sorry, he put them all in custody for three days. I want, for you, I want you all for a moment to, take a, to just take a second to try to empathize with Joseph here. You're doing your daily job. Things are going wonderfully in life. Right? You are dispensing food to all the world and everyone in the world has gratitude towards you and you see people of all types. You see people that are peasants and those who are struggling. You see royal dignitaries coming to try to fill their master's palaces with food. And as you're looking through the crowds, you spot a familiar face that looks a whole lot like Levi. That looks like Simeon. You've got to be kidding me. They've come here? And I wonder if in a moment Joseph was fearful that they might sniff him out and say, aren't you Joseph? But can you imagine what kind of emotions he felt? What would you feel if your siblings had sold you into slavery and you met them 15 years later? Do you think that would be a pleasant encounter? I wonder if for a moment he felt a, a sense of familiarity and fondness. Oh, wow, those are my brothers. And then suddenly he remembered, wait a minute, these are the guys that ruined my life. Do you think he was filled with rage, filled with fury when he saw them? Or do you think he was filled with sorrow or sadness from being betrayed? Probably a little bit of all of that. He's human, just like we are. And when we're betrayed, we have a hard time getting over it, don't we? There's a Few there's very few things that could have shook Joseph at this point of, of his life. The guy has gone through a whole lot. He's been sold out by his brothers into slavery. He's been falsely accused and thrown into prison. He's been forgotten in prison for many years. And 
he's gotten rescued out of it, right? And so he's gone through a whole lot. But if there was anything in the world that could have shook him to his core, it was seeing before him his very brothers who caused him all the grief and suffering that he'd experienced to this point, right? What could have, there's probably no one, no one that he would have wanted to see less than these brothers. And these are the ones that God brings before him in this moment. There's the, 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 the names of Joseph's children are evidence enough that Joseph at this point wanted nothing to do with family. Has it ever occurred to you all that Joseph at any time, once he ascended to governorship, he could have easily traveled back to his family's hometown. He could have searched out his old family. He could have went back and said, what do you, how do you like me now? What do you think of me now, right? But no, he was done with them. He wanted nothing to do with them. I imagine bitterness so consumed him that he, don't, he didn't think he could even face his old family at this point. But these people that he, he didn't want to ever see again show up on his doorstep, right? Where he is just going about his own business. He didn't go out and looking for them, but God brought them right back. Sometimes the Lord orchestrates our circumstances to bring the very thing that you feel like you cannot deal with, to bring the very person that you do not want to interact with, to bring about the very struggle of sin that you don't, you know that you can't win against. He brings that right into your midst. And you think, why? Lord. It's important to remember God has his purpose for such confrontations. And so when you think, why, Lord, did you put that guy on my team at work? That's the last guy I wanted to deal with. Why, Lord, did there have to be the test on this day and then I had family issues ahead of time and I'm stressed? Why, Lord, is it that I'm struggling with this sin right here and now, right before I'm going to try to pray and do ministry? These are not purely circumstantial, but the Lord has his purpose when we come across these confrontations that we wish more than anything we did not have to deal with. I imagine every one of you here today, there's something in your life, some confrontation with an old sin, an old struggle, an old area of sorrow you do not want to deal with. Folks, the Lord has his purpose for it. Well, the brothers are completely oblivious to what's happening, and you can't blame them. It's been over 15 years. Have you ever looked back on your yearbook photos and seen people from the past? You're like, that looks nothing like the guy I know. That probably was the case for Joseph. But on top of that, he's decked out in Egyptian clothing. And on top of that, his acting is pretty good. He probably got really good at acting very kind and, and, and meek towards people. Now he can turn it up and act stern as well. Most of all, they his brothers never dreamed that they would ever see Joseph again. They thought, we sold that guy into slavery. He's probably dead by now. We'll probably never see him again. And while they could never dream of seeing Joseph again, Joseph already dreamed of what was happening here in this moment, right? We know that from that very first introduction of Joseph and who he is and the dreams that he had, Joseph it tells us in the text here, remembered that dream and realized God is doing something here. God is bringing into fruition what he has promised. And then Joseph wisely begins to try to probe and feel out his brothers. Who are you? In a way, on one hand, on the exterior, it seems like this is deceptive. He asks, like, I need to know who you guys are. Where do you come from? 
But did you realize that in truth, it is an earnest question from Joseph? He really wants to know who they are, right? Where do you come from? He knows where their hometown is, but where are you guys coming from now? Are you that hateful, heartless, spiteful brother that I remember from years past? There is a real discovery that Joseph is trying to make far deeper than their background. And oh, how the tables have turned. And Joseph could have paid him back 10 times what they've done to him. And you know what? How could you blame him if he did, right? Look at what they say here as they're talking with him. You know, he says that you're spies, right? And he's pushing them. Explain yourself. Try to, try to tell me who you are now. And he's, they say we're all sons of one man. True. Your servants are honest men. There's not a person in the world that they, should, they could have said that to that, that that would have been an issue with except for Joseph. Joseph knew the deception of their hearts. He knew how wicked they had acted. They know uh, he didn't know what they, what they had reported to dad, but he figured that they didn't tell the truth and say, we, we you know, sold your son off into slavery. We are honest men. How would you have reacted to that? Do you think he might have been trying to hold back his anger? Honest, my foot. You're not honest. And then they go on to say that, you know, we had 12 of us and the youngest is with our father and one is no more. No more? Why is he no war? It's because you guys made him disappear. You made me disappear. You've got to really respect the self-control of Joseph here, not to like punch him out, right? This, this, is, this is infuriating what he's hearing. Now, granted, from their perspective, you know, they weren't trying to be deceptive. They're trying to save their own hide before this powerful governor that they think is Egyptian. But here in the text, it tells us that Joseph was intending to test them. Joseph said to them, it is just as I told you, you are spies in verse 14, and this is how you will be tested. Now, Hebrew word is very important here. It is this sense of we're going to see how, how real you are, if what you say is true. But that word for testing in the Hebrew also has this, this additional meaning of refinement. When you test a metal, it's this idea that you're testing its purity. And, and it often comes in context of refinement. In Psalm 66, that same word, bahan, is used. For you, O God, tested us. You refined us like silver. Psalm 26.2, prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. What's really happening here is not just a brutal interrogation from Joseph. Joseph wants to test to see who are you all now. But in this process, you should realize that Joseph himself was being tested by God. Joseph, what kind of man are you? Are you vengeful? Are you vindictive? His brothers are being tested in a second. You'll see. His father is about to be tested as well. This is what God does when we come across and are confronted by the sins and sorrows and struggles of our lives. It is a process of testing that the Lord is bringing us into. Well, Joseph sets up a living arrangement for them in the form of jail. And he puts them there for three days to argue who gets to go back and which nine get to stay here in prison. Well, actually, that's a pretty good trap. You get to see, are you guys really a bunch of selfish people that are all going to fight about who goes back? But Joseph comes up with a better plan after a few days, and let's read what happens here in verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. 
If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that, and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an account, accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them, since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep, but then came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. This is a really important part of the narrative here. Joseph sets up a new plan. He says, all right, let's do this. We're going to invert it. One of you stays, nine of you go back. On one hand, this may have been a further setup to test, are you all selfish people, right? Will nine of you be willing to leave one guy rotting here in prison, just like 10 of you were willing to leave me sold as a slave? It could be that. It could also be he wanted to provide nine people going back with grain to better take care of his family. He still had a lot of love for Benjamin, wherever he was. He remembered his father's affection for him. Regardless, it could be any of these things. It could even be that he just wanted to start setting him up for, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the future challenges to come, right? And he's putting more things in motion. What follows, though, is this conversation that utterly shatters Joseph emotionally. The brothers begin to lament. This is because what we've this is because of what we've done to Joseph in the past, right? And they think right now that they're safe from anyone understanding. There's an Egyptian Hebrew interpreter, but, you know, whatever. What does that guy know or care? They don't realize the governor standing there is Joseph. He understands all of it. It actually worked out to be a blessing. You know, if, if, if they had known that's Joseph, who knows if their pride might have kept them from speaking this out loud. But by God's providence, they think, well, Time to come clean and share honestly what's been on our hearts all these years. By the way, I don't think this is a first-time revelation that, man, we have really messed this up. I think that their consciences were probably seared for years, and this was something they were struggling with, and only now did it finally come out. Now, finally, they had to confront what they had done in the past, right? By the way, never assume that people around you don't understand what you're saying, even if you know multiple languages, right? And Doug has a great story about that. There's a, uh, people complaining about him in Spanish one time, and he understood all of it. They called him a clown, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> so you never know, right? But going back to it, all these years, Joseph probably wondered, do they have any remorse? Do they have any regret for what they did to me? Do they think about me anymore? Am I forgotten? And then he hears Reuben say this, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we got to give an accounting for his blood. Now, I don't want to psychoanalyze Joseph or anything like that, but I have a feeling that even knowing that one brother 
one brother at least tried to stand up for him, to know that one brother actually cared and had a conscience, I think this is what broke Joseph and brought him to tears. To know that he wasn't utterly despised and hated, there was someone who did care all along. Reuben is not an upstanding character in Scripture, but in that moment, he was right, and he did right. And it could very well be because of Reuben's heart that Joseph's heart was opened up. Just by the words that Reuben shared, it probably melted 15-some years of bitterness and sorrow in Joseph's heart. Did you know that your words, the way that we take accountability, the way that we apologize, the way that we share our hearts, and the way that we show affection for others have that capacity. But where those words are absent, it also has the capacity to harden people's hearts for years and years. Those words were powerful. Our words, your words, whether given or withheld, are powerful. For your friends, for your family, for your worship and the example that you set. Well, all these years, Joseph realized there, are, there was some, some semblance of brotherly love still there. You know that it affected Joseph because of what comes next. Did you notice that Joseph chooses for them who uh, gets left behind? <laughs> he goes out and he binds up Simeon. If you look at the Hebrew, it actually connotes that Joseph himself went and did this. Why Simeon? There's 10 brothers. Well, Reuben is the eldest of Leah. If this was going back to family warfare between the two mothers, he would have been the obvious candidate. Well, Reuben showed earlier that he actually cared about Joseph. So who's next in line? Old Simeon. And then there's also the point, too, that Simeon wasn't the uh, guy of greatest repute. He, was, he had a part in slaughtering all the inhabitants of Shechem, along with Levi. And so if his brothers were still kind of jerks, they wouldn't have too many qualms about leaving him behind, right? Like, this guy has got blood on his hands, and he kind of got what was coming to him, right? So he leaves behind one of the guys that, you know, it, it, wouldn't, be, it, it wouldn't be too hard to imagine they might actually leave him behind, Reuben gets to go back because he actually showed mercy at some point. And so there is this evidence that, you know, Joseph's heart is in some way touched in this moment. And so Joseph frees the rest to go back, but not before filling their bags up with grain and the money that they should have paid for it. Again, different ways you can take this. It's possible this was to be a blessing to his poor family. It's also possible that this is a further setup to guilt them. You heard of that term heaping coals? It's like, you know, hey, in this situation that you should have been getting judged, here's God's goodness. It could also have been a setup for the future. Are you really going to come back knowing that you didn't pay for the goods that you took? If it wasn't dangerous enough to come back with Benjamin, now they've got to come back to an angry governor who, who could say, where was the money that you should have paid to us, right? So could be any of these things here. Nonetheless, let's see how this narrative ends here in verses 34 to 38. So what happens, uh, let me fill you in, uh, they travel back home. On the way, their donkeys run low on food. They open the sacks and they find, oh boy, why is our money in here? And they know they didn't do it. They can only conclude that somewhere along the way that God is bringing judgment, right? They say, what is this that God has done to us? Once again, they're already in this mindset. They know that they're, they're going to be held accountable for their wickedness. 
So they go back home, they go to their dad, and when he sees what happens, he is terrified. Verse 35, as they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. When, they, when their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, you have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. And by the way, earlier they shared Joseph's uh, requirements to get Simeon out of jail. And what's interesting here is that <laughs> Jacob just, just assumes Simeon's a lost cause, guys. I'm not sending Benjamin. <laughs> he's, he's already lost. Just give up on him. He's lost as Joseph was to me. Wow, really not, not a great look for a dad right there. But nonetheless, here's an even worse dad. Verse 37, then Reuben said to his father, you may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. How would you like it if your parents used you as a bargaining chip like that? Woo, that's, you know, it runs in the family, right? <laughs> I got treated that way. I'm going to treat my kids that way. Generational sin's a real problem. Well, he says, entrust him to my care and I will bring him back. All right, great vote of confidence from Reuben here. Jacob says, my son will not go down, with, will not go, go down there with you. His brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey and you are taking, uh, that you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. And so Jacob immediately makes an executive decision and says, no way, no how are you taking Benjamin. This is also a, another reminder of the father's favoritism, right? Just let your son go on a trip and you can save one of your other sons out of being jailed for who knows how long, if not forever. That seems like a reasonable thing to do. Jacob here is having to be confronted about his own favoritism. He's having to deal with, God is forcing him to deal with his favoritism. Of all the things that Jacob could have heard, Joseph could have asked for all the money in their household's possession, and it would have been a less demanding ask than to ask Benjamin to be sent. God has a way of demanding from us those things that we cherish and hold on to tightly. He knows where our hearts are. He knows what we guard that we cherish. He knows the things that often supplant him and become idols. Do you see the confrontation that God has brought before Jacob? Will you let go of your son for the good of the rest of your family? When Jacob's, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. I won't do it. My son will not go down there. And that's, you know, really sad for Reuben, who's supposed to be this leader in his family. And once again, there's no confidence coming from the father. For good reason, Joseph did die when he was supposed to be in charge. But for Jacob, Benjamin was his last memory of Rachel, his beloved. He wasn't going to risk it. He couldn't risk it. Folks, we're going to stop in this passage here. We're not going to go on to see what happens till next week. But I hope that you see in this passage that there are family members being confronted over and over with the things that they dread. For Joseph, the thing that he dreaded was that confrontation with his family once again. He was done with them. He didn't want to see them ever again, yet they're the ones that brought, God brought right before him. For the brothers, there was that looming guilt of what they had done in the past to Joseph. And it assures the world that's the last thing they would ever want to think about. They probably try to try to stuff that memory as far down in the recesses of their heart as they possibly could. God says, no, I'm going to drag that right back up. 
and you're going to realize what you've done, right? And for Jacob, he had that prospect of losing his last memory of Rachel, and he had to deal with the fact that he has this favoritism in his life, right? This, this unwillingness to love all his sons rightly and equally. For each of them, they would have preferred anything else in the world to face rather than that thing in that moment. And from their perspective, this is an awful turn of events, the worst thing that they would have to face. But from God's perspective, he's dealing with issues that would never have been taken care of any other way. He needed to deal with these issues, the very thing that they didn't want touched. And folks, the Lord does that in our lives. He gets a hold of us in an area of idolatry. He gets a hold of us in an area where we have sinned and we have not been repentant about it. He gets a hold of us in an area where there's something we just don't want to be bothered about, we just don't want to deal with. I have those in my life. You all probably do too. And I want to exhort you and encourage that when God brings these people or issues or circumstances or memories to your doorstep, not to run, not to hide, but to realize that God's got a purpose for it. He wants to mold you and transform you. He wants to test you through those confrontations. And friends, if we are unwilling to face up to them and we keep running and hiding, we'll never grow. We'll never find the healing. We'll never learn the strength to go forward. We'll never learn our dependency on God. Joseph needed to learn how to forgive his brothers and to let go, lest his whole life be trying to take hold of what he named his sons. I've forgotten my family and I'm done with them. His brothers needed to acknowledge and repent of their past sins, that it wasn't a small issue. Can you imagine if you've gotten away with murder or selling your brother you know, away in slavery, what's off limits to you at that point? No doubt their sense of right and wrong was severely compromised. Jacob had to learn to let go of idolizing his child, to learn that he is not just Benjamin's father, he's father to the rest of the other 11 or the 10 that he knew were alive at that time. None of that was going to be comfortable or easy to go through. Church, so many times we want to run and hide from the sins, struggles, and sorrows in life. And we think to ourselves, when they resurface, when they show up again, these things that we don't want to deal with, or we think that we should be far past it, we get these thoughts in our mind like, you know, I thought I would have been more mature than this by now. How many of you have a family member that you get back together with them, you can't help but get into squabbling, and you're like, Man, this 10 years later since my last huge blow up and I thought I was better than this by now. Right? Sometimes we have that sin come into our life and we think should not be better, more disciplined, more, to have more mastery, to have better boundaries over this sin than I do at this point. Right? And we begin to wallow in sorrow because of it. Right? We, we think, shouldn't I be a better parent in the home by now? I should have learned this issue already with my first child. I'll admit it, there are things that I'm doing wrong with Timothy that I know I did wrong with Hattie, right? And I'm like, oh, what's wrong with me? And some of you are like, I'm a seminarian studying for ministry, or I am in ministry right now. I should be better than this. Or you think I'm a Christian trying to model Christ for my friends in the workplace. I should be better than this. Or you think to yourself, man, I've experienced a season of, of restoration and revival, and I got my disciplines on track for a while. Why am I falling back to ground zero having to build myself back up again. Sometimes we go into this season of intense zeal and fervor for the Lord and it's good and we're growing well 
And sometimes right after that season comes a sharp fall. Just like for Joseph, things were going so well when suddenly the return of his brothers, right? And it can be discouraging. I had that this last week. I'm not going to lie. I try to get on the bandwagon here. Hey, revivals come to our nation. Let's pray. Let's spend more time with the Lord. Let's worship him moment by moment. It was great last week. This week, I dropped the ball starting Monday and I never got back on. I, I don't know if that makes sense. I fell off the horse and never got back on, right? I was praying regularly with my brothers. I was worshiping in my spare time. I was keeping my mind centered on the Lord. And guess what? This week failed over and over. I know what it's like to have that great series of days and then the struggle, the sin, the thing that you think you should be better than comes right back and resurfaces. And when that time comes, we can get so discouraged when we're confronted with it again. But brothers, sisters, when we come across those challenges that we cannot bear to face, we're in a good place. That's a good place to be. When when you're looking at something and it's making you uncomfortable and it's driving you to realize that, man, I need the Lord. I don't got this. I need his strength. I need his forgiveness. I need his grace. If you feel like you're in the furnace, well, you're getting refined. And that's a good thing, folks. If you feel like you're getting beat up by the the, the troubles of life, the struggles of life, you're getting hammered like a blacksmith hammering a, a piece of iron. You're getting hammered into shape by the Lord. Jesus never promised that the Christian walk would be easy. He says that if we want to follow after him, we got to, we got to deny ourselves. He said that in this world, you're going to have troubles. He told us that if the world hated me, they will certainly hate you too. And folks, in this life, we shouldn't expect it to be an easy journey, a comfortable journey. And when it gets uncomfortable and when we get confronted by our own brokenness and how far we fall short, that's God at work. And yeah, part of it sometimes is spiritual attack. Some of it is like Satan coming after us. But just remember the story of Job. In that, God was testing Job. He invited Job to be tested. Well, if you read the passage, in a lot of ways, he he invited Satan to come. And do you see my servant Job? If you want to be a brother or a sister, that the Lord is pleased to lift up as someone who has been tested, who is faithful to him, beloved by him, it also means that you're going to be in the crosshairs. I've got to give three applications for you all on how to handle when sin, struggle, and sorrow confront you or God confronts you over these things. Number one, remember our spiritual condition apart from God is weak and vulnerable. Joseph had no shot in the world of not feeling rage and bitterness towards his brothers. It is a very natural thing for him. It doesn't mean it's justified. But if he had hatred in his heart for them, you could hardly fault him. If he wanted to throw them in jail forever, it's hard to fault him. We are fleshly, weak people apart from the Lord working in us. Sometimes part of church culture is that we just get our, you know, we try to get our act together. We remember the right verses. We're able to present ourselves well and we think, well, I'm a mature Christian. But folks, the truth of the matter is you are never, and you and I are never safe from our flesh. No matter how disciplined we become, the Spirit has got to intervene when we are trying to pursue faithfulness unto the Lord. Anytime God humbles us by reminding us of our inability or our weakness, that's God wanting to, to refine us and, and, and show us, you need me, walk with me. It's an inv- invitation to walk. Don't walk on it on your own. And you might be able to do so for a little while, 
But the fall will come shortly when we start to rely on our own strength. We don't have the strength to stay strong in prayer, consistent in the word, to be loving in the face of stress and pressure, to be constant as a friend as we should. We really need the Lord. Romans 7, 18, Paul himself says, the apostle Paul, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. We do not have it in us to live faithfully before the Lord. We don't. And some, some of us, sometimes we, we don't even feel like we have the desire, right? Some of us are like, man, that's good for you, Paul. I'm glad you have the desire. I don't even have the desire right now. I feel like I just want to run after the flesh. I just want to, I just want to have my way in this circumstance. I just want to press my agenda in this relationship or this conflict. Sometimes we don't even have that, 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 that desire. And you know what? It's okay to pray, Lord, help me. Help me to even want to obey you in this moment. Some of us here today, with whatever you're facing, that's kind of where we're at. Lord, just help me to want to have that desire to be a person of integrity and ethics. Help me to have that desire to be a man or a woman of purity that does not compromise. Help me to have the desire just to read your word. How many Christians would be afraid to admit that sometimes we find the word of God to be boring and stale? By the way, it is none of those things, but sometimes we think it. How many of us feel like worship is just something we do on Sunday and the rest of our week is worship of ourselves and the world? We're fleshly and weak. And by the way, that's okay in the sense that that's the reason for the gospel if you're weak, remember Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak, when we were still powerless, is how the NIV puts it, or when we were utterly helpless, I like the NLT translation there, that's us in the flesh. We're reminded in Romans 5, 6, at that right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The gospel message is that we are indeed weak. And we've been studying this in Galatians too, uh, as well uh, in our Thursday study. So many times we start out with this understanding we're saved by grace, but we quickly start trying to walk in the faith by our own merits and strength. And we need to be reminded we are weak in the flesh. And this is the reason for the gospel. The gospel is not that we were pretty good people and that we were living pretty well. And God says, all right, I'll save you. You've qualified yourself. The gospel is that you are utterly miserable in that I am totally unqualified to be anywhere near God. I don't belong for even a second in heaven where a holy and just God reigns. But God has first come after my heart when I was a rebel, when I was a broken sinner. And despite all of my failures and all of my past, Jesus Christ died for me so that I will be acceptable to God while I was weak. If that was the case, getting me into heaven, how should I presume that I will somehow continue in walking in righteousness by my own strength? We don't have it in us. The more we understand our weakness, the more that gospel message will mean to you. I want to challenge us. If the gospel message has become this old, dry saying or truth in your mind, it might be a time to take a visit before the Lord to ask him, Lord, would you test my life? Test my heart, Lord. Remind me of my great need for you. Number two, not just that we need to remember our spiritual condition for, apart from God, that it's weak. We need to remember our source 
of confidence that it must be in the Lord. I know this is kind of the same statement. It's a counterpart to it, uh, accompaniment to it. While we are totally unable, God is fully able, church. Where you feel so helpless in your ability to forgive, helpless in your ability to stand firm, helpless to become consistent in your life. We got a God who's all in on us. Have you ever thought about the fact that the entire Trinity is involved in your growth and your sanctification day by day? Every day, the Lord has made himself available to you as the Father. The Father has never once grown disappointed with you and said, I disown you. He didn't do what Joseph did to his family and say, I'm done with you. The Father forever is your Father who is aware of your needs. Before you even ask a request, the Bible tells us your Father knows about it. That includes your weaknesses. God knows our weaknesses. He knows our, our areas where, we're, where, we're, where we are frail, where we give in easily, right? The Spirit resides in you. This one that brings the conviction, the one that comes and lifts you with encouragement, the one who pulls the reins on you when you're about to falter into something you ought not to, that Spirit is with you daily, right? The Spirit who is a counselor unto you and a helper. This Jesus Christ who is our Lord, who is our high priest, is reigning all the time, 24-7. He does not stop. He's not like a lawyer who has office hours. And he says, all right, I'm available at this time. Can you believe any time you pray, Jesus Christ, right there, alongside you, praying for you. He cares for you. That's our Lord. All parts of the Trinity, all engaged, all the time. Folks, do you walk with this God? Do I walk with this God regularly? Do I look to him to be my confidence when I'm confronted by these things that are ugly and troubling in my life? We need to remember our source of confidence is in the Lord. John 15, Jesus tells us very clearly, you cannot do mighty things in the kingdom apart from me. No. He didn't say you cannot bring people to faith apart from me. No, that's all assumed. He says, apart from me, you can do Nothing. You can't even have a kind thought apart from me. That's true. That hurt, hurts to say here, but that's a reality. We don't realize it. It's only by God's grace that we ever bear fruit, that we ever show goodness, that we ever grow in the Lord. So stay close to the Savior. Finally, third, remember God uses our confrontation with our sins to lead to transformation in our life. Where there is confrontation, I'm not saying you should delight in it or like live in sin, but you can start anticipating God is moving me towards transformation. He's wanting to do something here. Joseph caught on probably quickly. I remember God, this dream you gave me. Okay, God, you're doing something here. This is not circumstance that my brothers showed up here today. And accordingly, he begins to try to feel them out. You know, in that moment, Joseph could have easily took all of their heads off if he wanted to. He was a powerful man. If he questioned them or put a false charge against them, who's going to oppose him? They're helpless in Egypt, right? His brothers know nobody there. Joseph understood God's wanting to do something here. In my heart, in their hearts. No one, no one in the Bible becomes who they are without these moments of confrontation and failed confrontation. What is shared in common, common between Abraham, Jacob, and Judah? They were all big liars, Abraham lied. Eh, that's not my wife. That's my sister, which is kind of true, by the way. Right? Jacob said, eh, I'm actually your son. My voice sounds weird today, but feel my arms. 
I'm your son. And then Judah says, oh, look at this, look at this torn, beautiful clothes. Who could they belong to and what could have happened? Moments like that are moments that eventually lead to transformation. Abraham had to be met with the fact that he was faithless in that moment. He had to realize, man, I got to hold close to God. I got to trust in him. And Jacob had to realize later what he did to Esau was so messed up. He's going to feel it in a few chapters where he realizes, man, the same way I deceived my father and my brother, I, I have been deceived, right? They were duplicitous men who lied rather than trusting in God, but that's how they grew. That's how they were transformed. But here's the thing. For us to actually get the growth requires that humility to say, Lord, I recognize you're trying to get my attention. I recognize you're calling me to repentance. I recognize you're calling me to walk with you and to trust in you so that we can put off that old self, put on the new. Here's a question for you. How do you take off something that you don't realize you have on? In Ephesians, we read this passage, right, that we got to put off the old self so we can put on the new. A lot of times God brings this confrontation into our life so he shows us you're wearing some really old, raggedy, stinky garbs that got to come off. And you got to start thinking about what does God want to clothe me in? What does God want me to become? How does he want to grow me? In the very final months of his life, having only enough strength to get himself back onto the field in China, Hudson Taylor writes, I am so weak that I can hardly write, cannot read my Bible, cannot even pray, can only lie still in God's arms like a little child and trust. By the way, if we're fortunate enough to live to that age, that'll probably become most of us at some point, where all we can do right now is recall the Lord. We may not even be able to pick up a Bible. In the end, all this great missionary could do was to put his hope and trust in the Lord. For all that would happen with the missionaries he invested in, and boy, if you read about his biography, he had some hard ones to deal with. That's all he could do was to put his ministry that he had formed into God's hands that constantly needed new support raising. As all he could do was to put into God's hands all those converts that he had won to Christ. He couldn't preach to them anymore. All he could do was learn to trust the Lord for his life's ministry. But he had this confidence he had learned through the harsh seasons of life. Elsewhere, he had written at some point, probably after that terrible encounter I shared in the beginning of the sermon. He says, heart and flesh often fail. Let them fail. He faileth not. In other words, I know I'm going to fail. I know that I can't control everything. And it's not to say that he's excusing when he sins or he falls, but to say that we're all in the midst of all my troubles and my worries and struggles, my eyes only really need to go to one place. They need to go to the one who does not fail. They need to go to God. So as we close out today, this, past, this, this uh, sermon on facing these confrontations that we hate to see, would you keep your eyes on the Lord? Hebrews, 20, uh, Hebrews 12 reminds us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. The author means that he is the one that's writing the story, right? It's not ours to write. It's ours to follow. It's ours to discover. 
the perfecter of our faith, not ours to become the perfect one to, to bring that about on our own. It happens in relation as we walk with him who never fails. For the one who endured the cross and all of its scorn and all of its shame, he now sits with heavenly splendor at the right hand of God. He is Jesus, the one who can keep you from stumbling. Folks, would you turn your eyes to him today in whatever, whatever confrontation you're facing in life? Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I know that this very day there are people here wrestling with circumstances that seem impossible for them to have predicted, just like Joseph. Who could have guessed his brothers would have showed up? And they're wrestling with their emotions. They're wrestling with the future. They're wrestling with how to trust you. Oh, Lord, I pray today, this morning, that you would show them, Father, that their situation is safe in your hands, that more than they need to worry about the outcome, they should be concerned with what you want to do in their lives to teach them to trust. Father, there's some brothers and sisters here today that are struggling so hard with their relationships. There's someone in their life, maybe a family member, Lord, maybe it's a coworker, Lord, maybe it's a neighbor, and Lord, they cannot even think peaceably about that person the very thought stirs up frustration and anger. Lord, I pray today you would help them to fix their eyes on you, to remember they're weak in their flesh, and to find their strength in you to forgive, to love, to show compassion. Lord, would they surrender to you this relation and say, Lord, as you pardoned my sin and left no room for the enemy to condemn me any longer, would you take this relation Lift it out of my own hand so that I would find no reason any longer to hold the grudge, to be bitter, to condemn. Father, there's some of us here that have old pet sin. We don't want to let go of it or we've tried to let go of it and we cannot. Father, remind us that the victory is not won in just a lot of accountability or a lot of different methods for avoiding sin. Remind us that unless we learn to yearn for you, unless we desire you more than we love these things, Father, that we're going to keep stumbling. And we need you to draw us near to yourself. Oh, Lord, help us if we don't have a heart to seek you. Lord, there are some of us here, we've been dry as a desert spiritually. Father, it's been a long time since we've wanted to commune with you in prayer, a long time since we've opened your word. Lord, I pray you would get a hold of our hearts. Remind us, Father, that your word is sweet as honey, that your presence is, is so good, Father, that in your presence there is this fullness of joy. Father, I pray you would remove the lie of the enemy that spending time with you is unimportant, that it doesn't matter, it doesn't make a difference. Lord, there's nothing that makes a difference in this world more than how we commune with you. Father, I pray for all those here that are uh, struggling with what it means to, uh, to trust you, Father, to let go of past uh, things of their past that have, that have scarred them, have, that have hurt them and wounded them. And Father, they, they, they long to be set free from it, but they're not even sure, is it even possible with how I grapple with these old things, these old issues, these old traumas? Oh, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would meet them, that you would, you would be their healer, ultimately, God, that you would lead them into your truth, lead them into your peace, Father. 
Lord, there's so many other things that we could pray for and lift up. But Father, I ask that your spirit would just illuminate in our hearts the, the confrontations we don't want to have or the ones that you've already brought before us. And Father, give us a humble heart, Lord. We know that you oppose the proud. You are the God that gives grace to the humble. So humble us to depend on you and to to be able to discern how you are working in our lives. Finally, there's some of you here today and you're not even sure if you've got a relation with this God that's supposedly able to help you. And if that's you here today, if today God were to take you away from this life, you're not sure where you would be. You're not sure how you will measure up before God. You've heard today this truth that you cannot measure up. You've heard today this truth that you are weak in your flesh. I want to invite you to stop trying to put together a resume that's going to qualify you for heaven. There is no such thing of that outside of Jesus. He's got the perfect resume and it's written up and it's signed and it's offered to you. All you have to do is to take hold of it by saying, Lord Jesus, I believe you are the one. This life is all about you. You came to die for this world. You came to die for me. And I'm believing that you are the Savior. I'm putting my hope in you. I'm giving my life to follow you. If you will do that today, this relation, this living relation with the living God is yours. If you will pray that, God will come and meet you and live with you. Father, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you, that for, thank you for the fact that at the right time when we were still weak, you died for us, we who were ungodly. Father, I pray that we would not remain in ungodliness and not remain in sin and, and not be deadened to our sins or the way that we handle relations. But Father, awaken us to the life that you want us to now live as those who are a new creation in Christ. Father, would we not live a life that is dictated by the old man and the old ways? For you set us apart. You gave us new life in order that Christ would be magnified in our lives. So Father, if we've been walking short of that, we just ask that you would continue to stir in our hearts all through this week to see those areas where you want to confront us. Thank you that you are a God who is not shy to point out the areas that we need to grow. Thank you that you discipline every child that you love. We bring this all before you, you who are our Abba Father. We love you. We bless your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.